Hey, it's Rayford Palmer and Rahul Iyer on the next episode of the I Just Want This Done show, talking about divorce, celebrity divorce, business, finance, and whatever else we think is interesting and cool and you might like to hear about. How's it going, Rahul? I'm good. How are you, Ray? I'm great. Glad to be back here. Week three. Yeah, week three. We are live um, talking about stuff we think is cool and interesting. So interesting item here. Uh, ran out across an article on Insider. Uh, one of my favorite websites, by the way, shout out. Uh, it, I've been on Insider personally featured with articles, so it ain't bragging if it's true. Um, but say, article is- Not a plug there, so. Yeah, exactly. Divorce is hot right now. Divorce is hot. And uh, I don't know. I mean, they're saying basically in 2023, this is a headline from Insider, divorce is hot right now. Uh, Julia Neftulin wrote, published this on August 2nd. We're unapologetic, unapologetically choosing ourselves, she says. It talks about a wave of celebrity divorces taking over the headlines. High profile splits mirror an uptick in divorce across the U.S. per CDC data. I was not aware of this. Um, huh. I didn't know CDC did that. I didn't know either. And then, you know, the Illinois statistics in our state are terrible. You can't find any divorce data from like past 2017. Um, hey, Shout out to Illinois Bureau of Vital Statistics. Please update your website. You're like five, six years old right now and nobody can get any information. So, you know, we're paying our tax dollars. Please update the site. Thank you. Okay. Divorce now feels as matter of fact as marriage and celebrities are owning that. Okay. And this person talks about, um, you know, Ariana Grande and Gomez divorce, which we talked about last show. Ricky yep. Martin and uh, Juan Yosef divorcing after six years of marriage. Didn't know about Ricky. I, I guess we're, I try to be up on this stuff. Sofia Vergara, which we talked about last show. And of course, the Costner divorce, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, yep. and, and then Reese Witherspoon, uh, some other people I haven't even heard of because I'm not hip to all these celebs, but uh, Kellyanne Conway, Trump, former Trump advisor. George Conway said they're ending their marriage in March. Housewives of Atlanta star Kim Zolciak. Sorry if I got the pronunciation wrong. And Croy Bierman ended their 12-year marriage. And so uh, apparently it's an epidemic. I don't know. But um, I can say that we are busy in our law firm at STG Divorce Law. I don't know if it's more than usual, but uh, what we tend to see is seasonal uh, and I'm sure you've seen this, Rahul, uh, being a partner at STG, having your own firm before joining uh, STG was, you know, summer slows down, right? And then what, you know, we see after, uh, when we get done with back to school, it picks up a lot. It picks up in late August when people are back from vacations. And definitely when back to school is done, we get lots of calls. And so I don't know that the celebrities are all that different. Um, a lot of these divorces really were starting in the spring and we're just starting to kind of hear more about them now in the press, um, which I'm not sure if the divorce is hot. I mean, we're not here saying it's cool. By the way, footnote, if you can stay married, do it. A good marriage is better than a good divorce any day of the week. So we always recommend people get counseling, try to keep yourselves together. And I'm actually working on my second book now, which is going to be all about that. So and then tied into that, we got an article entitled The Return of the Messy Celeb Divorce. We'll put this one up on the screen. Um, and this is all about, this is in The Cut, thecut.com, uh, giving hat tip, uh, by Allie Jones. She came out with an article talking about celeb divorces. And uh, what she's talking about here is it seems that the trend lately, or for many years, was an amicable divorce. And now, uh, like Gwyneth Paltrow famously had the unconscious, I'm sorry, conscious uncoupling. I got it mixed up. The conscious uncoupling, <laughs> not unconscious. The conscious uncoupling. Not an unconscious divorce. Yeah, from Rick, from Rick, uh, from Chris Martin, right, at Coldplay. And and she really touted their very peaceful divorce. And of course, we're big fans of collaborative divorce, uh, staying out of court. and. And Gwyneth definitely followed that advice and kept their issues out of court entirely. And she really touted that stuff and, you know, on her website and in media back at the time. And she was almost a model for kind of getting a good divorce at the time, encouraging co-parenting, things like that. And, um, you know, Reese Witherspoon, similar thing. Um, 
Tony Collette. So there were a lot of good examples of the right thing to do in recent years, in the last several years. But lately, things have been getting a little crazy. And the, the Costner divorce is an example. Um, they're fighting in court and it's been pretty public. Although I think some of this stuff is overblown. People are kind of imagining some fights that might not, not necessarily be there. Um, that, you know, the, if the press says, for example, that there was one article that came out, a couple articles were all over the news a week or two ago about how they were fighting over the dock. Well, what it turned out was in the Costner situation, the prenup didn't cover the dog. So an unnamed source said that it was an open item and not resolved because they both liked the dog. The media turned that into, they're fighting over the dog. Well, mm -hmm. uh, don't be so sure. Let's keep our powder dry and see what happens. But, but the article goes on to say, uh, you know, they're, they're still battling on the Costner divorce about the prenup being valid and stuff like that. And we've talked about that before. And that's been pretty public. And, and Christine feeling like he's the one that should leave. Um, accusations kind of flying back and forth on both sides. A request for $250,000 a month in child support and all that stuff. So, and then they talk about, um, they're, they're saying that it isn't as bad as the, and we'll put the, the cut page in the show notes and stuff, but, and, and up on the screen here, you'll see the article, but they say it isn't as bad as what had happened since Demi and Ashton Kutcher broke up in 2011. And I, I guess recently, and this Real Housewives of Atlanta, Kim Zolciak, they've been, they've had a very highly acrimonious split. So they're talking about that and how this seems like think that the tide has turned. I don't know. It seems anecdotal to me, not exactly, you know, evidence of anything. But certainly there's a spate of these in the news recently where people are much more public about it, you know, and, and we always talk about people are better off if they keep this stuff under wraps and resolve it through mediation and collaborative practice rather than fighting it out in court. But sometimes there's no choice. I'm sure Costner would have liked to keep it quiet. She challenged the prenup and he's had to hire Laura Wasser, who's an outstanding California divorce lawyer to represent him. She's had many high profile cases. I'm sure she's capable of handling this case uh, adroitly. So anyway, that was kind of interesting. And uh, these things all seem to tie together. So that's why we're talking about it. But one thing about the Costner divorce that stuck out to me was an article I came across in People, and we'll put this one up too. Kevin Costner's estranged wife claims he broke divorce news to the kids over a 10 minute Zoom call. Okay. This is a report uh, the kids are 13, 14, and 16, reportedly, and I'm not naming them uh, for their privacy interest. It's, and, and we're, you know, the press may do that, but we don't. So um, Christine said she was concerned that the kids would hear about it through an outside source. And unfortunately, she, there's a quote she said where she says, after a 24-year relationship from his hotel room in Las Vegas, Kevin told our three children, we we're getting divorced over a 10-minute Zoom call without me present. Okay. Now, this is a re press report quoting Christine. So we don't know that that's the case. Assuming that's true, that's bad stuff. We always urge our clients to get on the same page with their spouse Tell in advance. Plan out what you're going to say. Tell the, First of all, talk to a counselor who's an expert in child issues about what you're going to say. They have good advice about this stuff. And some of this is from my own experience where my counselor talked to me about what I should say ahead of time. And I talked to my ex-wife, we got on the same page. We had a very short discussion that's still painful for me to remember because it's the worst day of my life still. But this is the only way to do it is to tell your kids this in a short message, tell them what to expect because kids are naturally selfish. They want to know what's in it for them and tell them you love each other. You know, you're still a family, even though you're getting divorced and you're going to be keeping things as much normal as possible. And try to figure out at least the next line segment of your lives. You know, are you going to stay in the same neighborhood? The kids want to know what's going to happen. Are they staying there for the school year? Are they going to see their friends? These are the things they worry about. So have some, you, you can't promise everything, but give them some information that so they know that the world isn't completely coming apart at the seams. So short and sweet, informative, and then just support them. They're going to be feeling, they're going to feel terrible.
but be on the same page. And they don't need to know why. Why is for, is for you and your spouse. Why is not for the kids, except we just can't stay married anymore. We tried. And kids don't need to know your, be- your business. So Kevin went around about it the wrong way, uh, in, in my opinion, based on this report. So Rahul, do you have anything to add on that topic? What's been your experience, your advice? Yeah, definitely. I think you. I think you nailed it. Um, oftentimes, you know, during this acrimonious time, some people might view it as winning a race. Like I'll be the first to tell the kids, you're not getting a prize for doing that. In fact, you could have, like you said, adverse effects to these or for these kids uh, because they'll think about themselves and they'll obviously not know the full effect of how this plays out. So they'll naturally presume or assume the worst, and that can create a lot of anxiety and problems. And also, children's age is is very important. You might not tell a 16-year-old what you might tell a 10-year-old. And and so I think that's important. And like you said, you have to get aligned. And depending on what other issues a child might have, you might have to do it in the presence of a therapist or through some family therapy appointment where a trained professional can sort of guide the conversation instead of just saying, I'm going to tell the kids this is what it is. And like you said, kids don't need to know why, what's going on. Uh, in divorce, it's always irreconcilable differences, right? Yeah. So that's basically we just dumb it down and tell the kids, "Hey, we're not gonna, you know, we don't want to be together. We don't want to be married together anymore." But that doesn't affect how you're being treated, right? You'll still have both parents. We're not going anywhere. So I think it's extremely important to be aligned for the sake of the kids because you don't you don't get a one up in your divorce by telling the kids first, and and certainly it's if anything. If any impact, it's going to have a negative impact both on the kids and probably if and when a judge may find out that you did that, it's probably not looking great for you. Right. And you're also now you've kicked off this adversarial thing right off the bat where now the other spouse feels like they're on the back foot. Now you've just set the stage for them to go talk to the kids without you. And now they're going to badmouth you or say negative things about you that might not be what you want them to hear. And um, so you've now lit the fuse for a potentially bad situation. Why, mm-hmm. why screw up the kids and kick off things on the wrong foot? You know, you're not gaining the advantage you think you're gaining by being like the first one to race over and give them the message. It's, it's just not good. And nobody needs to know the whys and wherefores. It, there's too much potential for blowback with your kids. So if we're going to give any guidance to anybody, that's, that's what we'd say. That's, uh, that's very good advice about what to say when you're getting divorced. So, uh, to your, to your kids, um, there was something I, you've got a thing on, in our show notes, uh, in the doc about Bumble date gone wrong. I wanted to know about this one. What's the story? Yeah. So yeah, no, absolutely. So I was kind of uh, just going through some articles, you know, perusing while I get to work. And I saw that the, there was on the, uh, in the, in the U S sun website, uh, this lady was talking about how, or this girl, whatever you want to say, how this guy, she went on a date with this uh, pilot who, who apparently showed her his quote unquote murder gloves, he says. Mm-hmm. And so contextually, what it says is, is uh, what, uh, we went to dinner. Well, wait, before, and, before you tell him that about that, Rahul, yeah. maybe explain for the people playing the home game, what is Bumble? Because some people might not know. Yes, absolutely. Bumble <laughs> is a dating app. So very, very popular these days. You have Bumble, you have Tinder, you have Hinge, you have... Isn't the, twist, isn't the twist on Bumble that it's the ladies picking the guys, not the other way around? Or right. So the guys and the women. Yep. So the guys and the girls, they'll both swipe left or right. I don't know. I was... Uh, uh, I was before the uh, e-dating times, so I, I have no idea how they work. But nevertheless, uh, like you said, they'll both, you know, both people will say whether they like somebody or not like somebody. However, like you said, the women have to initiate the conversation. Uh, so they have to reach out to the guy first. So you can't have like some thirsty dude just shooting off messages to all kinds of women, for example. They right. have to wait to be received. And then when that starts, that's when that open communication channel starts. So okay, it's, um, you were going to say something? Yeah, only that a couple friends of mine have long-term relationships with these are guys who met women on Bumble, and they thought it was great based on. And they'd done the other apps too. They they tried other ones, 
and they thought Bumble was the best for a serious relationship. Shout out Bumble if you're interested in uh, sponsoring the pod. We're we're all about you guys. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I haven't been sponsored by Bumble yet, but I do. I have. I do agree that they are. I hear as well the best. Uh, second place, you know, I think is typically Hinge, uh, is what I hear. But you also have these offshoots, right? Because Bumble has what Bumble BFF, I think. Oh really? Can, I, I don't even know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You you move into a new city, you don't know anybody. Ah. Log on to Bumble BFF, you just have people who want to be friends with other people. That is brilliant. And so there's a platonic component to that. that. So very clever. It's so I, I, again, not no personal experience, but Bumble, you know, shout out and uh, you know, so maybe our shameless plug will pay off. So you were talking about um, Trudeau. I'm not Trudeau. We uh, we were talking about the uh, Sun uh, date. Yeah. About the Bumble date. I'm sorry, we got off track, but I wanted to explain what Bumble was because some people might not know. Right. No, absolutely. So they go on this date, basically, and apparently she, the 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 girl, did not well, was apparently not hungry, but they go to this restaurant. So the story's a little wacky. Uh and she I guess she says that he proceeded to force her to eat a meal including an entree, an appetizer, and dessert. (laughs) (laughs) Even though she had apparently insisted that she had already eaten, but uh, apparently she ate again. And and so that was a a bad, uh, that was not a great start. Red flag number one, time to leave. Red flag number one. Yeah. Yep. Number two, the guy wanted to know if she would split the bill with him. Oh, geez. And she wasn't thrilled about that, it looks like. And again, I'm not trying, you know, we're not trying to beat up on her. We're just sort of talking about what the aspect what the story here is and and her position and then she says when we were putting on our coats it was it was february so it was cold i suppose wherever they were he pulls out these black leather gloves and says these are my murder gloves and that's not good she says that that's not good i'm not sure if he was riffing on it by making an oj simpson joke Uh, maybe he thought that oj simpson's now funny it maybe crossed the time time frame where you can make jokes about it but nevertheless she said therefore she uh, this whole situation made her nervous about leaving home for weeks and so i got out of chuck i got a chuckle out of this because i mean you never know who you're going to meet on these things right so she says it's 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 one of those where she was really nervous she was always looking around she was nervous about him following her because apparently he knew where she is so i mean it, it was certainly seems like maybe this guy was kind of a really creepy dude um and and you know she's it's uh something that traumatized her but kind of gave me both a chuckle and also made me think because i mean you're essentially randomly meeting somebody online remember when when we were young and parents would say don't talk to strangers that's literally what this is you're talking to a stranger right no vetting process you haven't met him before and then you go in and you're you know holding your life in your hand i guess essentially yeah and it's like you got to use common sense folks like number one coffee date first something neutral location you show up in an Uber, never let them pick you up. They never, don't give them your cell. Don't give them your home address. You don't even have to give them your real name, okay? And meet these people neutral, somewhere neutral like coffee or one drink, something really simple, and then you can bail if they're creepy. But that's just, yeah, you gotta be careful out there, folks. Word of the wise, if they uh-huh. make you eat, it's time to leave. <laughs> I would be out there. <laughs> Like that is not just eat. You're going to be, you you have to eat an appetizer. You have to eat an entree and I am not letting you leave until you eat dessert. What what is that? That's some creepy (laughs) stuff. Oh, well. And and then you need to split the bill because I don't want to pay for everything. You just ate that I made you eat. So, okay. So you had another thing on the dock on the dock and and it was like tying into this about Tinder users and like a survey. What's all about? So that's the other app. Tinder, right? We talked about Bumble uh, briefly. Tinder is the other, uh, is, is another, there's many. Uh, there's is another app. I think Tinder may have been first, sort of the first uh, big app to blow up for this. Yeah, and Tinder is so, more of like a hookup app, right? It's not meant to be like a serious dating yeah. app, or am I wrong? Right. No, no, you're, that's, that's sort of the reputation. I'm sure, you know, people in Tinder have had happily ever after stories, but. I think from a majority, I think Tinder, people view it as just an app to, to hook up or hookup culture, I guess what they call it. So this, this, uh, this article uh, on Sky News, uh, shout out Europe, uh, is said almost two thirds of Tinder users are already in a relationship and half don't even want shout to actually out. date. 
Wait, say that again. So, uh, so two thirds of Tinder users are already in a relationship, and and here's the kicker: half don't even want uh, want a date. They they'd rather hook up and go back to their regularly scheduled programming. I guess so. Uh, it was uh, it was interesting. It said that uh, researchers spoke to about fourteen hundred users, aged eighteen to seventy four. Shout out to the seventy-four year old on Tinder. <laughs> yeah. uh, good, uh, good on you. Uh, way to stay in the game. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, but you've evolved with technology, right? Yeah, 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 right. Not Hank. only you're using a smartphone. Savvy, savvy. <laughs> you're dialing up. You know, you're, uh, you're ordering a pizza here. It seems like for them. So uh, they spoke to fourteen hundred users and and the number of matches and dates that they've had. And they asked about their self esteem, whether they were lonely. And they said that many of them stay active on these apps, even though they aren't looking for dates or hookups or hookups for the same reasons that they they both either like to do this hookup or otherwise it sounds like they're using it as social media. Let me see what's out there. You know, I'm already wearing clothes. I have nice clothes, but I'm still going to go to the store and see what's out there. So they're just like so, window shopping. They're just like window shopping. So I don't want to sort of say that all these uh, all these uh, people are out, uh, you know, having extramarital affairs or you know anything of the sort. But it's definitely a red flag, like you you mentioned, a red flag yeah. if you're in a relationship and you're still out perusing what's what's available. So I think that's definitely problematic, and yeah. and that might tie into you know why divorce is quote unquote hot. Maybe I don't know. Well, yeah, word to the wise. Um... If your spouse is constantly on their phone and they weren't before, and they're they're locking their phone when they weren't before, and all that stuff, something strange things might be afoot at the Circle K, as Bill and they said in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So be on, <laughs> great movie, be on the, by the way. Be on the lookout. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting, and the window shopping thing is interesting. So people, some people are just swiping because they like to look at pictures on on their app and and just look at it and not even take action. So while well, Tinder's just right. happy people are paying for their app, I'm sure they don't care. Um, oh, I mean, if you want to unlock more options, I think they let you pay or they make you pay. And I mean, you got to wonder, you know, you have the whole catfishing thing too. So yeah, yeah. I think people get, a, when they get a little too comfortable, you're sort of, uh, that's when you, I think, lost the plot. So they say. Yeah, for sure. So that leads me to not necessarily directly to the Trudeau separation because that's in the news and we mentioned it obliquely, but um, got a Reuters article about, I mean, it's all over the news. It doesn't matter where you look, but uh, Justin and Sophie Trudeau separate after 18 years of marriage. Uh, He's 51. She's 48, married 2005, three kids, 15, 14, and nine. What you might call the typical disaster, unfortunately, these, you know, for we've seen, and, and I can just tell you, I'm sure there's research on this. I don't know, but the majority of divorces that we've seen over the many, many years I've been doing this and that's many years you've been doing this are people where a kid is just starting college. The kids typically are like in high school. Maybe the youngest is in eighth grade, but that's when people have been married 15 years, 20 years. And that seems to be a major break point in relationships. And it's kind of like people are dealing with children. I think they sort of understand, they know each other. And I think the challenge, this is sort of the famous midlife crisis. We're all living longer and people arrive at this sort of existential question. Is this all that there is, you know, in my life, even somebody as successful and famous as Costner or as powerful as Trudeau. Now we don't know who's asking for the divorce. Really. It's not really clear. They have kept things on the down low. Um, they're so far quiet. And I'm sure since he's, his political power is sort of an, probably an issue and they both want to maintain his whatever his position is and as prime minister, you know, they're both financially interested in his brand not being damaged, right? So what you're going to see, I bet, is this is going to be very quiet and we're going to hear about this when it's all done. And, and that's it. I mean, we're, we're hearing they're separated. The next thing we're going to hear is they're they're divorced, and um, their system in Canada is similar to the British system because, of course, it was a British Commonwealth. And uh, I know several uh, divorce lawyers in Canada, and I'm actually interested to get their take. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but they, um, you know, they've appeared in the press many times. Uh, there was a profile of both of them in, as a couple in in Vogue in January 2016 kind of a glowing profile about how great their marriage was. 
and look, you know, we, we're not gloating over this at all. This is a sad situation for their kids. Again, a good marriage is better than a good divorce uh, any day of the week. But so far, they're doing it right um, by keeping it quiet. And hopefully for them, themselves and for the sake of their kids, they will. Um, I'm sure it's demanding to be married to a political figure who has this much exposure and who's buried in their job. And it's challenging to be married to somebody like Kevin Costner, who's been committed to Yellowstone and all these other projects. And, you know, this, this is proof writ large that money doesn't buy happiness. We've represented people with many, many millions of dollars who are the unhappiest people in the world. Um, money is a tool. Uh, it's, it sure helps make life easier, but it doesn't get you escape from human problems. And uh, one thing I've heard Tony Robbins say was money doesn't get rid of your problem. It just lets you arrive at your problems in style. And I think that's a great quote. And it's, it's absolutely true. So we wish them the best and, and hope that things go well, especially for their kids. So, well, I'm sure we'll maybe see more news about that. Um, I don't, we don't know the divorce law in Canada. don't know how that works in terms of division of assets and, you know, what they do about support and stuff like that. So, um, which leads us to an interesting thing you had. In before the, you go, before you oh, go to oh, that. Yeah, what, do you have anything uh, you want to mention on yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. No. Only, yes. Uh, just briefly, because again, this is all speculation. You had mentioned, we don't know. We really don't know what the reason for the divorce is. None of that. But, um, when I saw that you you wanted to talk about this topic, and as a Canadian myself, I was very curious. Oh, that's as to right. What I'm maybe sorry. Yeah, was. resident. Yeah. So you have a resident Native Canadian, Canadian here, so, citizen. Uh, so I uh, so I did a little research, and by that I just mean I googled it, and I found <laughs> <Okay>. an article. <laughs> I found an article, and again, this is uh, quoting it. We're not spreading rumors here. Yahoo Entertainment, uh, August third. Uh, the internet thinks Justin Trudeau's wife, Sophie, had an affair with this famous actor. And famous actor in question is one Idris Elba. They say uh, that uh, they were both attending some, or I, I, you know, the article, I don't want to read out the article because, again, it's purely yeah. speculation. And we've got the, we'll, we'll, one, we'll link it in the show notes if anyone wants to read we'll the dirt, it. it's there. Yeah. Right. But that's that's one one theory out there or one sort of proposition is is that something may be afoot there. OK, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? We're yeah, we don't know. But uh, that's the so that's the scoop, at least allegedly. All right. Um, so we, I came across this is on a totally different note, but some, we, we like to do some here and there in that talking about the interesting, the juicy stuff. We also like to talk about some things that are more nuts and bolts here and there that are interesting to our listeners. So this was an article I came across um, in uh, uh, BNY Mellon Wealth Management, actually. I was looking up business and divorce stuff because a lot of our clients are business people, entrepreneurs, um, owners of businesses, high net worth individuals. And this is obviously very interesting to them, and that is how are businesses handled in divorce? And we're not talking about you know owning some shares of stock in a public company. That's easy. That's an asset that's divided in, in Illinois and in 41 other states in the United States, which are equitable division states, not community property. It's, the, the, it's equitable division of property. People usually say 50-50. We know it isn't always 50-50 without going astray and getting into all that. Um, we're not talking about publicly traded, you know, your investments, your retirement portfolio. This is what happens if you own a company, you know, you own a manufacturing business or you own a large accounting firm or whatever it may be at, or a startup. Well, yeah. Or you have a startup, right. And you, you own an interest in these businesses. How is that handled in divorce? Well, first we have to determine whether the property is marital or non-marital or some combination of the two. And uh, that, again, we're not addressing community property states. There are only nine of those. Um, and things are a little different in community property states. But basically, if the business was created before the marriage, it's generally going to be a non-marital business. Then if it's, certainly if it's created after the marriage, it's going to be considered marital property. 
with some caveats, and I want to bore people here with all the details. Consult an experienced divorce attorney in your jurisdiction for more on your specific case, of course. But um, generally speaking, if it's been formed during the marriage, it's going to be marital property subject to division. And this article talks about it's pretty good. Um, first of all, BNY Mellon had somebody who can write in plain English <laughs> write this article, and we'll put the link in the in the description. And we've got stuff on our website at STG Divorce Law, stglawfirm.com. We've got a couple articles about businesses in divorce and dividing them in divorce. And they talk about uh, valuation approaches, and they talk about a couple things. First, they say, well, how you know? First, I'm going to start with. And some of this isn't in the article, so I'll start with a high-level view. So people say, well, geez, I don't want her to share or him to share the business with me. And I don't want them to be, you know, me to be forced to run the business with them. Don't worry. The Illinois, Illinois has already figured that out. <laughs> they, they don't want you to run the business with your spouse either because they know that's a surefire way to destroy the, the company. So what happens is the operating spouse ends up being having their interest uh, the other person's interest in the business is purchased by the operating spouse's, you know, equity. So you basically have to purchase your soon-to-be ex's interest and you retain the company. So the next question is, how do you do that? Typically, people have some of their assets they can trade or liabilities they can trade on the balance sheet in exchange for that value. Or they work out a payment plan, they basically sell or finance it. They figure out an interest rate they can agree on. They agree to a five-year, 10-year plan, and they, and they secure it usually. There's usually a security interest, and they pay over time. And I've, we've done deals like that, and that's how this is typically handled. So you're, How do you figure out what it's worth? So that's a great question, and I, I will get to that. One other thing I wanted to mention is, so they're not going to make you operate it with your spouse. Now, if... Uh, if you are a part owner in a business and you're not in control and you have stock that's restricted or another another ownership interest like in an LLC that can't be transferred to your spouse by the terms of the ownership agreement or the operating agreement, it won't be. What will happen is there'll be, if there's a liquidity event, you will have to buy out your spouse or pay them out. There, there's two ways to handle it. One is wait for the liquidity event and pay them out at that point, and you say, well, what about taxes? We That's figured in as well, so that you don't eat all the taxes. You share that with your, your ex. But the other way it's done is you buy them out now for the future interest, and now you're kind of guessing what that value is going to be, uh, or you, we're going to talk about determining value, or you share if, as, and when. And, and some people take that route. So you know, if, as, and when it sells, you're in the same boat, and that's oh, and it's a very speculative speculative endeavor. That might be something you want to do. Or if you think it's going to be a big winner, you may want to buy that person out right now when it's a question mark because you you know you've got more faith in the in the project and the business. And you may know something that or you may have confidence the business is going to take off and your spouse may not think so. Well, maybe now's the time to buy them out at a lower dollar value than it might ultimately be. So that's how that's done generally. So your question is great, and thank you. And that is, how do you value this? There, the, the key is fair market value, and different states define what they call it fair value. They call it fair market value. Uh, Revenue ruling 59-61 published by the IRS has a definition of fair value or fair market value. And it's basically what a willing buyer would pay to a willing seller, you know, given access to basically appropriate information. So... Uh, it's basically an arm's length transaction value. And that's not always easy to determine in a, in a business, especially a closely held business or an early startup stage company. So uh, the Mellon article is useful because it talks about the valuation approaches. And I want to talk about a couple of things. Um, business valuation experts are the people that we hire to do this work. And they are trained in- We're not the ones valuing it. Yeah, exactly right. Now, we've done this for a long time, and but we don't claim to be business valuation experts. We have some good rules of thumb. We can look at certain businesses and tell you we don't think it has much value. For example, a one-attorney law firm, a two-attorney law firm. It has value on a cash flow basis, and that's represented 
in terms of alimony and child support, but it has no, it, it got no real purchase value because it's all those two people or that one person. The value is all what we call personal goodwill. It's not like they can sell the, the, the Joe Smith law firm to somebody else. If Joe Smith leaves, the law firm has no value. So that type of business, a single dentist in a dental practice, whatever, those things are tougher to value because especially like a law firm, so much personal goodwill and very little uh, asset value in the business. But again, this is more the province of experts. Anyway, the experts use, they have two different types of evaluation opinions that they provide. And it's important to know the difference. One is a calculation of value. Calculation, calculation of value is what they also will call like a windshield valuation. That is, they kind of look at some of the financial data, they kind of skim over the information, look at some of the books and records and tax returns and you know that kind of thing, and they do kind of a skim, and they give you an idea, a ballpark idea. The other thing is a full valuation. And a, a full business value, a calculation of value is like a five to $10,000 proposition for a modest sized company. Um, it's a good idea when you're, your question is, is this worth 100,000 or 4 million? You know, is, is it basically worth nothing or is it worth some real money? And then you're finding out at that point, is it worth fighting over? You know, after we right. get a taste and appetizer, is it now worth much more work? So we recommend calculations of value very often so that the expert can get a, a 35,000 foot view and say, yeah, it's worth a deeper dive or no, it isn't. And give people a good idea of, of what we're talking about for that all important cost benefit analysis we're always talking about. So if you go into a full valuation and, and they will give you all kinds of caveats with the calculation of value, they'll say this isn't a surefire thing. We haven't interviewed the management. There's all kinds of caveats. So when they do a full valuation without boring you with all the details, they do a much deeper dive. They dig into way more financial data. They interview senior managers and, and they get way more information. And even then there are a lot of caveats because of the guesstimates and the things they plug into their calculations to come up with a price. So all the assumptions. Exactly, because to come up with these calculations, they have to assume a number of things. And the client will say, well, what's the number? What's the number? And the number will be 5 million, 10 million, 15, 20, whatever it is. And when you read the fine print in the expert's report, it always says this is essentially a range, even though they do come up with a number. Because of the assumptions made, it's a range and sometimes it's a wide range. And what you'll typically see is the expert for the other side will have a wild, like a different opinion. Sometimes it's wildly different. And you've got to look under the hood and see the assumptions they made in reaching their calculations and reaching their conclusions and also the approach they took to reaching the number. So the, the Mellon article is useful because it digs in, explains the appraisers. They're also certified business appraisers. They talk about the different people qualified to give these numbers. And they talk about buying out, sell, or share the interest. And we talked about that in Illinois, you're not sharing the interest. It just doesn't typically work like that. But they talk about the asset approach, the market approach, and the income approach. And they, the approaches are appropriate for different types of businesses. And typically, the, the evaluation expert in their report will explain each approach, and they will sometimes calculate the number under multiple approaches, and then they will tell you which ones they think are most appropriate. So you're getting um, a spectrum of information and they're sort of waiting, W-E-I-G-H-T as in waiting and heavy, the value of each version and explaining to you why they think it's the best approach. Now, experts might differ on the approach. They might say, this one should be an income approach, not a market approach. Market approach is straightforward. It's looking at similar transactions in, in the marketplace that have happened recently to see what's this business worth. And there are- It's like the most intuitive, right? Yeah. It's like right. you're buying a house and you look at the comparables. Yeah, it's just like a comp study. And, and in certain businesses, it's in, let's say a publicly traded business, it's very easy because we have stocks, we know what they're trading. If there's decent trading volume, we, all, we have daily information. We have hour to hour information. Um, with a private company, 
it's a little more challenging, but even records of the sales of private businesses are kept in databases and you can look them up. So businesses of any size, any significant size, there are comparables. And uh, you can study them and find out what those are worth. And there's even an interesting way to find out comparable sales in a very small business setting where it might not be publicly available. And that is, if you're in a multi-partner situation, you're in a situation with a bunch of shareholders or a bunch of members in the LLC, if there are recent transactions where the company bought out those people in your own company, then that is strong evidence of the value because somebody just paid in an arm's length deal X dollars to buy somebody out of their interest. So we, we've seen that before in various things like a medical practice where a, a doctor just like the doctor you're representing was bought out for X hundred thousand or X million dollars. And now we say, well, what's my interest worth? Well, this person sold their interest for X, so you can expect yours will be similar. So that's a couple ways to do market approach. Um, asset approach is really what you might expect. It's looking at the um, asset value of the company, um, more or less a book value situation, but really evaluating what are the assets in that company versus the liabilities to figure out what it's worth. Uh, that's going to be appropriate for certain kinds of businesses where the assets are a high value item. Um, things like a manufacturing business that has a lot of, um, you know, maybe real estate, manufacturing equipment, a lot of inventory and accounts receivable, uh, cash on hand. Those are ways to look at asset approach. Um, income approach is one where you're looking at your value in the business based on a stream of income. And that's appropriate for certain other types of businesses. So the, the evaluators will use these various approaches, come up with their numbers to come up with a conclusion. But, um, and it takes months to do these, um, even when the people are cooperating well to do these valuations. But uh, that's, that's generally how that happens. And it talks in the article about you know, the options, sell the business. Uh, one option always is sell the business to a buyer and split the proceeds. And um, I've had cases in fact, I have one, or I had one recently where the parties were looking to sell the business on, the, on a public market. And that's the easiest thing because now you have exactly what the price is and you have the cash in hand and you're just dividing the money. That, that solves the problem. Business is worth what someone will pay for it. Yeah, it's just like selling real estate. And when we always have those issues with real estate, and people say, well, I'm fighting over the value and everything. And we always say, well, you know how to find out? Sell the property. And then... <laughs> You'll, have, you'll know exactly what it's worth and you can split the proceeds. So yeah, that's, and they talk about that in this article. Useful overview here. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Any experiences you've had about uh, doing business asset cases? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, one person will be better equipped to, to run a business than the other. If it's something that's a specialized industry where you might need certain credentials to run a business, the other spouse, even if they wanted to, couldn't do it. Like a law firm, you know, if your wife is not an attorney and you are, and for whatever reason, let's say, you know, you say, first of all, you won't be able to give her the law firm because she's not a lawyer. So you will have to retain it. So what's the offset? Uh, how do you determine the value? Uh, you know, someone might not, if it's a construction company or a startup, they might not have the software background or the, 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 the procedural, you know, know-how essentially to, to run these things. So you oftentimes do end up having to offset unless you find a willing buyer to pay something for it, which will just make everybody's lives easier. But uh, like you said, uh, you the, the, the valuations typically look at these different approaches and then right. they do a weighted average, right? So they'll say, okay, the marketability aspect is 15%. I'm going to use in this industry, the asset approach is most common. So we're going to give that a 70% and then we're going to give the income approach another 15%, for example, and you sort of weight it. And then that's the average. And of course, two people, two reasonable people can differ. So you're going to get an expert on the other side saying it's not worth that. And you get into that fight. And then, like you said, the assumptions are where you find an attack. You say, what assumption did they make that they shouldn't have made? And why are the assumptions your guy made or your gal made? better than the assumptions the other side made. And that's really where the, uh, you know, where the sizzle comes in. Right. And calculating, and there are some big guesses made in these things that are, these assumptions, for example, the value of future income, you know, you're, you're making a giant projection and you're also 
guessing what you know an interest rate basically um or you know and or a discount rate and people can debate on that and that's where if you're dealing with big numbers the swing in the numbers can be huge based on the assumptions you use half a percentage point uh-huh. um you know 100 basis points can be a giant difference in the bottom line and this oh, is yeah. where people say well why are divorce lawyers you know expensive when they well if you've got the experience and you and you understand what you're doing with this stuff it's worth all the money in the world to pay for somebody who's experienced and understands all this stuff. So that's, and that's where this. It's very interesting. You know, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting stuff. And we, I, I find these cases fascinated. Our firm deals with these and we find this stuff very interesting. And, you know, we're business owners too, and entrepreneurs, and we like working with these folks. So uh, we, we find these things right in our wheelhouse and we, we enjoy this work. A couple of other points about business assets and divorce. There are people who will insist they want to run the business together. I always tell, and or they say they want to hold, let's say they have uh, income generating real estate, right? Airbnb, or they've got multifamily or something. And they say, oh, we want to own it together. It's all good. I, I'm telling you, it may seem good now. Chances are it's not going to be good. And somebody's going to get remarried. Something's going to happen and you're not going to like it. It's better to just get it over with now. And you're going to want to separate those interests and just get it over with. In in my experience, these things never end well when people try to stay together. And Illinois law, like public policy, reflects that because of experience. <clears throat> There's a case I remember reading, I don't have the case in front of me, about two people that uh, di- divorced and they kept running a restaurant together, like a bar and restaurant. It was a total disaster. And there, then there was litigation about separating it post-decree. And uh, it, it just shows long-term, it's not going to work. And you're better off just getting it done and figuring it out and getting the split done. It's just too much potential for trouble and you might as well get it resolved. And the problem is too, it's toxic to the business, which is like probably the lifeblood of the family. Do you want bad vibes going on in your company where you're conducting your business? where you're making your money, and by the way, feeding your children and your future. Ultimately, the the non-operating or the less operating spouse, somebody out of two people in a business, nobody's equal. I don't care what you say. Nobody's truly equal in a business. Even if they were performing a valuable role in the company, everybody in a business is replaceable. Usually there's one spouse who was the operating spouse or more operating spouse and one person who wasn't. And that person's replaceable and probably should be replaced for the in the best interest of the family long term. And and by the way, compensated fairly. So I'm not saying they should get the short end of the Of story. course. Yeah. Absolutely get fair value for their interest and um and all that. But those are important considerations when you're dealing with this. Um and uh, that may be the biggest asset in the marriage. And for many people, it is. And it's the thing that's throwing off all the income. So I w- wanted to talk about that. I thought that was an interesting subject to discuss. Um, you, what were you, you going to say something else about that? I've, maybe not. No, no, no. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. So um, I think it's always nice to sort of figure everything out so you're not leaving loose ends that will inevitably based on our experience we can say you know it'll seem like it works hey right now this will work i mean you got married thinking it's going to work unfortunately it didn't and just like that unfortunately this may is likely not going to work so just don't want to find out the hard way yeah and the other thing is don't go cheap on the valuations like it's it's well worth the investment in doing the the valuation that if you want to start with the calculation of value, that's great. And you will save a bunch of money. If it turns out, you'll at least have an arrow pointing in one direction or the other that it's, it's much less than you thought, or it's what you thought or whatever, you'll have a good indication. And then the expert can use that work to springboard into the full valuation and they're not reinventing the wheel. So that's our, our advice on how to go about doing that. And we know many good valuation experts and, by the way, word to the wise, you want a valuation expert who has lots of experience doing divorce cases. There are lots and lots of valuation firms out there who do very good work for estate valuation purposes, for tax purposes, for business you know, acquisition purposes. 
but they have no experience testifying in court. And the bottom line is you want evaluation expert who understands what it's like to testify, be cross-examined, and they've got to look good and be able to explain things well to a judge. Some of these folks are phenomenal experts and they're, they're, but they're like professors. Maybe I should say they're not like professors because professors are probably good teachers. They're brilliant, but they can't convey ideas well. And in court, evaluation expert needs to explain very complex things in a very simple way. And that's also something you should look for in a lawyer. Can they explain a very complicated topic in a simple way? Because the judge has limited time. They don't have tons of experience in all this stuff a lot of times. And they need somebody to explain these things in a succinct way because ultimately the lawyer and the, and the expert witness are teachers. So. Uh, exactly. Credibility is extremely important. Yeah. Succinct and credible. Yeah. You, uh, uh, you want to make sure that your audience, you know, the audience, you might have the world's best uh, evaluation on paper. You can't convey that in court. And if a judge doesn't believe you, you've lost. Yeah. I don't care how good that valuation is. So yeah, that report is succinct, it, believable. Yeah, it's ultimately, you might be able to, now if you can negotiate a settlement based on the report, more power to you and you don't have to try the case, but always assume, you know, there's an old, the old stay, saying, if you want peace, prepare for war. And, and we are not combative folks in our law firm and we believe in alternative dispute resolution, but also that comes from me being a trial lawyer and knowing how to fight and our firm knowing how to fight if we have to. You've always got to be able to back up your negotiations with the fact that people respect and understand that you know how to fight if you have to. It's, I always describe it as the battleships offshore. It's much easier to negotiate on the beach when the battleships are offshore. And uh, it, trust me, that's, I've been doing this for almost 30 years and that's how it works. And uh, when people respect you and your skills and they respect your expert and they know that they're going to do a good job, the lawyer, guess what the lawyer tells their client? Hey, uh, Rahul Iron knows what he's doing that law firm knows what they're doing and that expert is sharp and has testified in court many times. What they're saying is going to be listened to by the court. You better pay attention. And so that's valuable. And uh, those are considerations in what, whatever lawyer you hire, make sure they understand this stuff and whatever, whoever the expert is, make sure they understand this well, not only that they can generate the valuation for you. And I don't care if they've done a thousand of them, if they haven't testified, they're not qualified because they need to be able to testify in court and do it well. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I know it does to you, but I'm talking to the audience. So yeah, so let, move on. <laughs> let's um, shifting gears a little bit. You had an interesting thing that I, I, we always wanna promote good marriages here and we're all about that. And that's what kind of talking about in, this, in the next book and what I talk about on social media too, and you do. And that is, uh, you had a interesting blurb here. You said, unspoken rule for successful marriages. What's that? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, you kind of nailed the theme of the show, right? It seems like, or at least partly theme, you know, a good marriage is better than a good divorce. So how do you have a, have a good marriage? So I came across this article that says, uh, titled, Married Women Reveal the Unspoken Rule, quote unquote, for having a successful marriage. Just going through some of the rules, it says in marriage, you're both partners. You have to treat each other equally. You know, there's no it's essential to maintain independence, but also nurture joint interests. You try before you buy. Don't jump into a relationship. Date, make sure you're a good fit. Don't compromise on things. I think we touched this on a previous episode. You know, there are some non-negotiables. One wants to have kids, one doesn't. You can't compromise on that. Either someone's going to resent, either resent or you just don't care and you change your mind. But usually that doesn't happen and there is some sort of resentment. So you want to make sure you try before you buy. You embrace integrity and equality. You you want to make sure that the person you're getting into this relationship with is a good person that you with similar values. Uh, the value judgments are are there. Uh, the fourth uh, point is quote unquote the price of admission. So the guy or the gal they're a package deal. So you have, you take the good with the bad. You can't say, well, I like all these things about you, but I don't like all these things. I mean, yeah. it's a package deal and you know what you're getting into. You know what you're buying. So you have to make sure you're okay with that. Pick your battles. This one is pretty self-explanatory. You, you know, you can't win everything. You also don't want to be a, you know, roll, roll over for every little thing. So sure. you have to pick your battles and put your foot down. It's important to set boundaries and ultimately 
it says those are, you know, those are the most uh, key points is what this article said were. Those are good. Yeah, that's good stuff. I think it's great. Yeah, that was very good. Uh, good advice. I think you know, it's uh, inherently we understand a lot of this stuff, but it, it's nice to see it sort of written down because you have almost like a checklist essentially. Yeah, and, and I think it helps because fewer divorces if you're in a good relationship. Yeah, Sorry, and you're, it's like one of those things that always bears repeating. It's kind of like it's always good to hear. You know, we think well, we know we should diet and exercise, right? But it's it's good to hear it. Right. Obviously, course. we need a reminder yeah. now and then, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are good tips. And the one thing they talk about, try before you buy, that's I, I have to that's so important. And there people will say, Well, you gotta get married when you're 30. You gotta wait till you're X age. You know, I don't believe that. Um You'll grow to love them, you know? Yeah. I I do believe you need to experience you should date set many people before you choose one to marry. I agree with that. So I don't think there's a magic age necessarily. It's more like more like experience. And it could be when you're younger. Um, it might, you know, it, and also you don't, you can't always predict the future. And, uh, but generally, fundamentally, people don't change. Um, yeah, it, we, and we've seen that, in, you know, anecdotally when we do all the consultations with people. And when they say people have changed, usually they haven't when you dig in and you ask some questions. It's usually that something that always was there bubbles up to the surface or they're finally sick of it and they, mm-hmm. they can't tolerate it anymore. And they, or it was buried for a long time for some reason, like kids and career and all these other things. It was like, they were so busy. They had no time to pay attention to issue A, B, and C. And when those things, when the kids get older and they have money now and their careers are stable or whatever, now the, the couple's left with each other again. And they're almost back to dating. And they're like, well, okay, the dust has settled. Everybody's running around. They're so busy. They don't really have to live with each other. And there's always an excuse to not spend time together. Well, then when the dust settles, now they're back together with each other. And they're like, oh, well, this thing about them does bother me or X, Y, and Z. And I I think one thing I've seen over my time is times change, people don't. It's pretty rare for people that really change, which is why the diet industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And all diet advice can be boiled down to one thing. You don't even need to read a book. I'll I'll solve it for you right now. Eat less calories than you burn. There it is. Simple, right? Eat eat vegetables and protein. (laughs) That's it. But we buy all these books and we watch the videos and all that stuff because it's hard to change. And those are habits. Those even aren't fundamental personality traits. Those are just habits. Wow. But if you got better- I mean, you're working hard and a bag of chips looks so enticing, right? You want to grab that bag of chips and you want to eat it. Well, yeah. I mean, that, but so we talk about relationships and we talk about how people's personalities right. are. This stuff is like a burr under your saddle, proverbially, maybe over 20 years or whatever. And, and you get tired of it, maybe, or it becomes uh, maybe fatal to the relationship. So yeah, it's those tips are great, and try to see the forest for the trees and take the long view, and all those things are all good advice. The, the Gottmans, G O T T M A N, John Gottman has all these books about marriage, and they had this thing called the Love Lab where they researched couples dealing with their relationship struggles, and um, I talk about some of Gottman's stuff in my new book. Great resources, by the way, if you're. If any of you are struggling with your marriage or have any questions about your marriage, and my book isn't out yet, so you can't buy it, but read Gottman's stuff. It'll be very interesting to you. Um, We'll put a link to a couple of his books in the notes. But yeah, so thanks for that. That's awesome. Um, Keep, uh, please uh, like our, our little, we have a little agreement here on the show, and that is you get this for free. We put this, Rahul puts time into this. I put time into this, and our hourly rates are, are high because we're very fancy divorce lawyers. Um, and uh, my mom would want you to hear that we're very fancy and important. Um, <laughs> but, and, and Rahul's will too. But we, uh, we put a lot of time and effort into the show for you. And we're just asking, all you have to do is tell people about it. Just click the like button. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. Click the like, share, follow, all that stuff. 
rate it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and we appreciate it. That's how, that's how you can pay us. Doesn't cost you anything, just takes a minute of your time. And once you do that, we're good. That's our little agreement, we appreciate it. Thank you very much, and we hope you Thank keep you. Uh, listening and watching. And uh, always give us feedback, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot, you can uh, see links to our social media, um, and all that stuff is here on the website, on YouTube and all that in our description. And uh, thank you very much for listening.